welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for joining today. We are joined by an awesome guest, and I'm excited to introduce you to her. But first of all, my name is John LeBaron. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer here at Pattern. And we are joined today by Chris Malkowski. She is the CEO of Home Solutions at Newell Brands. And that's a little bit of a big title. So Chris, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about Newell as a whole and where you fit within that awesome organization. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me today. This is exciting. Newell is a $10 billion company. We make a lot of brands that you would find in your home. In fact, it's a fun cocktail party to see how many Newell brands you can find when you're visiting friends. We make Graco, we have Rubbermaid, we have Kelphalon, Yankee Candle, Coleman, and I could go on and on, but lots of great brands, Sharpie. So we have fun at work because they are cool consumer brands that we play with. Now, my job specifically is I'm the CEO of Home Solutions. And what that means is day in, day out, I actively run the food business unit. And the food business unit includes the brands Rubbermaid, Kelpalon, Sistema, Food Saver, Ball, Kerr, and if you're in Canada, Bernardin, which is a big brand up there. But I also provide support to the president of Home Fragrance. And Home Fragrance are brands like Yankee Candle, Chesapeake Bay, Woodwick. Combined, the two business units are about $2.6 billion or about a fourth of the total new business. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thanks again for giving us an update on that. And You've had a lot of amazing experiences in the C-suite at a lot of great companies. And then you've kind of had this great path that's gone, honestly, truly around, you know, kitchen and bath and home and consumer goods, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about that customer journey. As I talk to innovators across different industries, I'm always super curious about their career journey and how they ended up where they're currently at. Yeah. So I started my career at Procter & Gamble, which is a great company of brands. And one of the things when I was a child, I wanted to be a private detective because I wanted to figure out what made people tick. And as my life evolved, what I realized is I was so lucky to get at P&G because I could figure out how to make brands tick and be better for consumers. So I really set the stage of being able to either create new brands or turnaround brands when I was at Procter & Gamble. And I've taken that with me the rest of my life. So whether I've worked at private equity, privately held, or public companies, it's all about the brands, which is why I'm so excited to be at Newell with its great repertoire of brands that they have. You asked, though, about what really drove my career. What drove it was my ability to see the opportunities to excite and delight consumers. And so didn't matter what I touched, I was able to grow it. And when you get results, people might scratch their heads and say, how'd they do that? Or I can't quite figure out how she can make those successes happen. But I've honestly not met a business or a brand that I have not grown, both the profitable side of it and the top line side of it. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, we're going to hear a lot about that and kind of get into that. So I am going to skip around a little bit here because I want to dig into that notion of the private investigator kind of aspirations. I think that's such a cool 
thought process. And for me in my career, I kind of had that same inklings. I guess I, I went down more like a social work path and like human psychology. But I think that desire within some of us to really figure out what makes people tick, why certain things or people or products thrive in certain scenarios and other people don't. I love that kind of tinkering mindset that you articulated. And you've had a lot of that, I think, within product innovation. And because this podcast is all about innovation, maybe you can tell the listeners today, what were some of those private investigator moments in which you kind of understood this isn't working the way it should, or wow, I've landed on this consumer insight. And how did that get manifested from an innovation perspective? I have so many stories. Let's start with P&G. So there was this great brand called PERT, but PERT had been used by over 90% of households. And it was the number 16 brand by the time I arrived. And P&G put me on this small brand because I wasn't one of their typical hires because I didn't have a fancy MBA title from a fancy school. And I wasn't male at the time in a promote from within environment. But what I saw in the PERT user is that they didn't fuss in front of the mirror. They popped a sweater over their head and they were on to the next activity. They were very active, very on the go. And I realized that what they really wanted was a complete shampoo and conditioner in one bottle to fit that busy on the go, no fuss mindset. And so working with our R&D community, we created the first one and PERT became the number one brand for active on the go people around the globe, 28 countries, we were number one brand. So that's just one example. And I'll keep going if you don't mind. So a little bit later in my career at P&G, I oversaw the launch of Aleve Pain Reliever. And what was interesting is Aleve is the only over-the-counter drug that initially was not approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And the reason for it was it was a stronger pain reliever than Advil or Tylenol, and there was concern that people would overdose it. And so we were trying to figure out how do we get this launched because it's such a great anti-inflammatory pain reliever. And we figured out from an advertising standpoint, we should show the six or eight Tylenol or Advil people had to use to get pain relief versus the two, a leave to get pain relief. We did research on it and came back to the Food and Drug Administration and said 99.9% of people understand this works all day long, all day strong, which became our selling line, and we got it approved. And it's been a great drug. But in that whole process, we found out that a third of pain states were not treated by anything but efficacious heat. And so we said, well, what is efficacious heat? And we realized it was between 40 and 42 degrees centigrade. If it was cooler than 40 degrees, it didn't work. If it was hotter than 42 degrees, it would burn your skin. So we were trying to figure out how could you get all day long efficacious heat so you weren't plugged into an outlet with a heating pad. And we got the technical engineers together from each of the business units at P&G. And we said, is there anything that is efficacious in this range? And one of the engineers raised his hand. He goes, iron ore oxidizes at 41 degrees centigrade. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. We were like, how could you get iron ore to oxidize all day long at the same constant? And the next engineer raises his hand. He goes, the new breathable Pampers diapers provide airflow that could oxidize all day long. And from that, we created Thermacare heat wraps. So if you've ever put a Thermacare heat wrap on your body, 
it warms up. Your pain goes away. I usually wear it overnight and I wake up the next morning with no pain, but it gets hard as it stops heating. And that hardening is ore that has oxidized, believe it or not. So that's just a couple of examples from my days at Procter & Gamble. I got more, but (laughs) you, you let me know what you want to hear. Well, we might come back to that. I guess I just wanted to, as I listened to you talk, it feels like there are, I don't know, maybe at least three kind of stages. And I don't know what the recipe for innovation is, but I mean, that first stage is kind of that private investigator mindset of trying to truly figure out that customer insight. So maybe I'll start there and just unpack it a little bit because I think it's so fascinating. How did you do it? I mean, do you have researchers? Did you actually go in people's homes and watch them use the shampoo? I mean, like that sounds creepy actually, but you know what I mean? Like, You said they're getting in front of the mirror. They're not really messing with their hair. Were there focus groups? Like, Help us understand what that piece looked like. A lot of it comes from observational research. And it's not trying to see what they're doing. It's trying to understand their unarticulated needs or their compensating behaviors. Yeah. And once you understand that, then you can say, oh, what does that mean to product innovation? I will give you an example from a company I was previously at. We were watching professional chefs in a kitchen. And we noticed after a couple of different restaurants that the sous chef who does a lot of the chopping had rubber bands around their knife handles. And we were like, why do you have rubber bands around the knife handle? And they would show their poem and say, well, we get calluses from all the chopping that we do. And so we came back and we said, what if we created a silicone handled on the bottom knife for people who do chopping in the kitchen so that they have a more pleasant experience. And we launched a line of knives. It was the first time with that company that I had ever gotten distribution in Williams-Sonoma, but it was a phenomenal knife set for high-end kitchen masters. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So the first step, obviously, is the private investigator, the customer inside, the observational research, the unarticulated needs, all that stuff. The second one, I think, is the innovation, truly. The engineers, who would have known how everything oxidizes and how to really... So I think surrounding yourself with people and engineers or scientists or whatever that looks like. And man, you're lucky to be at so many great companies that actually you're surrounded by those types of people, right? And so how did that process look? Did you just kind of get in a room and say, we think there are all these ideas? Did you ever use third parties to do this? What did that process kind of of innovation? Did you dictate and say, we have to do this way? Or you just say, here's the problem. Here's the insight. How would you solve it? What did that process look like? It varied depending on what company I was at. But I think where sometimes people don't get the big idea on how to solve a problem is they go to the same group of engineers all the time. So even within Newell, when I'm thinking through a problem, I'll talk to somebody in my home fragrance segment who deals with wax and melts and things like that to see if they have a creative thought about solving a problem. Because sometimes when you get people who are a little bit further away, they can actually see solutions a little easier. Yeah. Sometimes they don't work. I have used third-party companies like IDEO or Fahrenheit 212. Yeah. And sometimes I've gone to external vendors. When I was running the craftsman business, I had a personal experience. I wanted my husband to hang some new pictures that I had bought, and we forgot to charge the power tool. And so we had to wait 30 minutes to hang the pictures so that the battery could get charged. Yeah. And 
I said to my Chinese vendor, I said, man, if you could just give me a quick boost charger that in 60 or 90 seconds could charge my portable power tool, there's got to be other people like me. I even work on tools and I forgot to charge my battery. And they did. They created the quick boost charger and we launched it. And now all of the battery manufacturers provide a two minute or lower charge. I love it. Yeah, such a pioneer. Well, you know, we don't always get people with your background on the show and people who are so close truly on this innovation front. You and I had chatted about a handful of other experience from the easy find lids to the whatever it is. Like any other stories that you can think of before we kind of move on? Because I think our listeners would just find a lot of these examples pretty fascinating. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about something that's launching in January. So in a former life, I worked on uh, clear bakeware. And what I knew is if you took it out of the oven and you set it on a surface that was too cold, it could quickly have something called thermal down shock. And sometimes the glass would break because of the quick change in temperatures. I also knew that when people use metal bakeware for broiling, that the bakeware often warped because the gauge was not high enough in the high heat. And I was like, wouldn't that be really cool if we could find some material that acted like glass, could actually be glass, that could withstand broiler, and that if it broke, it maybe broke in three large pieces instead of exploding into a lot of little pieces. And I worked with my former employer. I had left the business and we are launching in January Rubbermaid Duralite Bakeware. I am so excited. You can broil with this bakeware. You can bake with this bakeware. It's elegant and beautiful. So you can take it to the table and feel proud to serve out of the bakeware. We created some really nice storage lids so you can stack it in your refrigerator. It's lighter weight than ceramic type bakeware products that are out in the market. And it nests easier than current bakeware. So I'm really excited. I think it's going to do well in the marketplace. I love it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, this is the testament to all those things that we just talked about, which is that innovation up for the inside up front, then the innovation, and then how do you figure out really creative or innovative ways to take stuff to market? So I think that's interesting. And Maybe to that point, maybe we shift gears a little bit. You and I had chatted a little bit earlier as well about this, but it's like innovating around the marketing and around consumer interaction. Like, what does the actual delivery look like once you've gone through those first two phases? But that last phase of actually getting into the hands of consumers, can you talk a little bit about what innovation looks like either at Newell or in your past life? That piece. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a couple of examples. And let's go back to that hurt. Plus example, because this was 1986 and trial size didn't exist at the time because we could put full bottles of shampoo in our luggage if we were going to go someplace. So we knew that probably 95% of Americans thought they had tried PERT. PERT had actually restaged three times. So nobody was going to try PERT again, right? So we literally hired school teachers during the summer. We put a little apron on them that said PERT Plus and had them stand at the front of grocery stores and drug stores and give out a trial size of PERT and say, you have to try PERT Plus. It's really changed. And 
lots of people tried it, which is why it became the number one brand right away. But that was a way of physically interrupting somebody to get them to think again about a product. And nobody had done in-store sampling up to that point in the marketplace. I think Costco owes a lot to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's awesome. What else? I think in the tool space, what were some of the things you did to innovate on the customer experience and delivery there? It was so much fun to work on Craftsman because Craftsman people love Craftsman. And Craftsman people are home project people. So whether you're a woodworker and you're building a gazebo or you're refinishing a car or you're even, you care a lot about how your lawn and landscape look. They loved to take what they've learned and pass it on to people of like-mindedness. And so we were like, wow, wouldn't that be cool if we could create the craftsman experience every day? And we turned that thinking into literally creating a live lab in downtown Chicago where people could engage online with people who were woodworkers or people who did gardening or people who fixed up cars and say, hey, I'm working on this project this weekend. Do you have any ideas? We got such a strong response. We actually crashed our website multiple times because we had too many people coming on too fast. So, and this was about 10 years ago, technology's improved, probably wouldn't crash it today, (laughs) but we actually ended up taking that thought and saying, How else can we utilize this concept of helping each other? So we created these live podcasts that aired every day, and we would have people submit their, can you help me do this? Can you help me do that? And then we would build it or we'd show them how to fix it on their car. One day we had a person say, you know, I love drinking keg beer. Can you show me how to make a kegnik table? And we did. We we drew it up and we built it on site. But this community of followers we would have anywhere from 25,000 to 50,000 listeners a day. The whole Craftsman Club built to 20 million followers. It was amazing. And we started turning it into fun stuff and we kind of became a cult following, believe it or not. So we said, okay, instead of just projects, why don't we now take people? So we put a call out for the world's most unhandy man. And the guy, we narrowed it down to five that we thought, we could borrow their lives for three months. We gave them 50,000 to stay with us for three months and uh, they had to move to Chicago. So when we picked our top five, we let America pick the most unhandy man. And it was a guy named Alan Wistale. And Alan came and lived with us. And even when we gave him his apartment, he had to build all his furniture and Alan was not handy at anything. But then through the course of learning how to be a real handy man, we would kidnap him. And one time we kidnapped him and we put him on a island in the Louisiana Bayou area and told him he had to build this pontoon boat to get off the island. And the only thing he could use was his computer. And so people started sending Alan input on, you got to do this, you got to do that. And he got off the island, but then we dropped him into the Sahara Desert and he had to build a dune buggy. And again, the only support he got was from the people giving him input online who knew how to build dune buggies. It became such a cult following that it showed up on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Jimmy interviewed Alan several times to figure Uh, out how he was progressing and becoming 
the world's most handyman. But <laughs> it's it's so much fun to innovate with marketing and things like that. So what am I doing right now? Well, right about the time we are launching the bakeware next year, we are launching Newell Kitchen. And Newell Kitchen is going to be this community place where people can go for daily recipe inspiration. And one of the things I've said is you got to make it simple, simple ingredients, simple to make, but constantly creative. And so people can tune in for recipes on our website. We're going to have the space available for up and coming chefs. If they want to get videotaped, we'll be able to produce it for them. We're going to post their content. They can use their content as they want. We're going to ask users and influencers to come and create their own user-generated content. We just want this to be the heaven for foodies. I love that. It sounds like it's going to be really fun. And I had no idea about that whole unhandy campaign there. I feel like I need to go watch the Jimmy Kimmel interview and see some of this. It's like survival. I can send you a link if you like. (laughs) Please do. Yeah, I'd love to see that. I think it's so fun. Anything else that comes to mind? I know that we talked about a handful of other initiatives that you did or around online yeah. center. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of other things. When you're stuck in a rut, really think outside of the box. And what do I mean by that? We had created this $2,500 tractor mower called Turn Tight, and it really could turn in like a four inch radius which, you know, people who use tractor mowers know you got to go forward, back up to kind of get around things. So it was a really big deal, but it was a $2,500 tractor mower. And it's really hard when you're sitting in a store with no grass to explain what the mower does, right? So we said, how do we get visibility and awareness? And what we knew is people who liked the high-end tractor mowers tended to live on greater than an acre of land. They tended to be men and they tended to make over $100,000 a year. And oh, by the way, that's the exact profile of people who like to go to auto shows. So we put the tractor mower at the Detroit auto show. (laughs) The the auto enthusiasts were not happy, but Jay Leno picked our tractor as one of his top five vehicles at the Detroit auto show. And of course, then we got tons of publicity and following with that. And then we had another product when I worked at a snack food company that we created. Boston Consulting Group had given out some information that said, When men really splurge, they buy themselves a new golf club or they look at buying a new car, but they go that way. When women really splurge, it's somewhere around eight to 10 at night with a glass of wine and they go for a decadent treat. And so we created this line of decadent treats and man, they were good. It was like dark chocolate and caramel pretzels and white chocolate fudge with sesame seeds and other drizzle. It was called indulgence and each bag was only a dollar ninety nine. And we put it in the marketplace and we didn't sell a lot. And we were like, it played so well in the consumer research. What's going on? Well what we found out is the women felt guilty buying something called indulgence. So we brought it back in and we repackaged it. We added a fifth panel to the little box and on the fifth panel it said Every purchase of this product, we will donate 50 cents to CARE, which is the international humanitarian organization that empowers third world women. 
And we raised the price to $2.49 to cover the donation. And the product flew off the shelf because now people didn't have to feel guilty. They felt like they were helping (laughs) when they bought their indulgence. (laughs) That sounds like the pre- treat yourself movement, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except maybe not quite as healthy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, that's hilarious. Uh, man, we, I know we keep going on for a long time. There's another topic that I wanted to really get to with you because, well, maybe two actually. And the first one is, you know, as I listen to you around all the different fun experiences and things that you've had, I guess in my head, part of it is like, well, maybe you're just crazy innovative and what hope is there for the rest of us that don't kind of have that brain. But the other thing is like, is there a recipe or something, you know, a framework that you follow or, or whatever? And I think it's like, what are the qualities or competencies of someone that you would look for in terms of, is this person going to change the game? Are they truly going to bring innovation? And maybe it's that innate curiosity we talked about. Maybe it's, you know, the ability to surround yourself with other people and different viewpoints. You highlighted the bat earlier or people that are able to kind of not be as close to it. But I don't know, as you kind of step back and think about what truly fosters creativity in an individual or a team, anything that comes to mind? Yeah. So first of all, it's always be curious, always look for those compensating behaviors or the blank space where something could be better. So how do I get it better? The second thing is be ready to learn. I have uh, three young adult children, ages 28 and 30, and I always have them tell me about what's the newest technology thing? What's the next trend that you and your friends are doing? Because there's a lot to be learned by doing that. And I remember when TikTok wasn't even a common word and my daughter was like, you got to get a TikTok account. So we're putting our brands on TikTok because it's the place to be right now, right? But also understand the world evolves. So just because you're in a good spot one day doesn't mean you're going to be in a good spot the next day. And then really make sure you surround yourself with diversity whether it's diversity of people, diversity of places people have come from. I'm always better based on how diverse the conversations and thinking are that happen around me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So much of what you just said is aligns very much with what I think and what my experience has been as well. And incidentally, (laughs) when I signed up for TikTok, my 15-year-old daughter said, Dad, you can't sign up for TikTok. That's so cringy. And I was like, I got to understand what's happening here. I got to see this. This is new. So, and I like to joke with her, like, you're so old. Like the iPhone wasn't even invented when you were born. Why are you so old? So yes, yes. Tip for tap for sure. Okay. Well, I mean, man, we could just go on on this forever. Maybe the last thing and maybe similar to the question I just asked, but abstracting a little bit is I'm sure you get asked to speak a lot. I'm sure that a lot of people internally and externally look up to you and your career journey. What advice do you have for people who are early in their careers in terms of navigating, accelerating, innovating in their own professional journey in the way that you have? Yeah, I'd probably put it into three buckets of thinking. Bucket number one is 
make a difference, get results, be an achiever in whatever it is you're doing, because people maybe can scratch their head and say, you didn't come from the right pedigree to be able to do that, but they can't deny that you're making the big difference. And therefore, it also gives you a lot of good job security, to be honest, because they'll keep you around. I think the second thing is, and I've seen this a lot throughout my career, people come in and they're like, I'm going to go from point A to point B to point C to point D, and it's going to be the straight line. And they miss a lot of opportunity. I'm better today because I didn't have that straight arrow up to the corporate ladder. I meandered around small company, big company, private equity, public And it has really built a much more holistic brain set for me than if I tried to just go on that straight path as fast as possible. And I think sometimes people miss opportunities to really learn and to expand the repertoire of what they are all about because they have these paradigms in their mind about, I got to do this, got to be at this level by this time. And then the last one, I would say, this is my life philosophy. My life philosophy is live, laugh, love, and let go. And you really need to balance it all. So I always say, live your life to its fullest. Love, love what you do. Don't put yourself in a job where you hate coming into work every day. Laugh. If you can't laugh at yourself and you can't laugh at some of the craziness that goes on, You let it get you down. And then finally, let go. You know, I I remember when I showed up at my kid's preschool and I brought ho-hos and ding-dongs. And a lot of the ladies who were there who didn't work had handmade these wonderful desserts. And, you know, they were like cringing a little bit at me, like, she brought ho-hos and ding-dongs. Well, all I'm going to say is my desserts were the first one that the kids picked. (laughs) But but I'm not competitive. But but seriously, you know, I could have walked away and gone, oh, my goodness, I didn't live up to the standards of all these moms. It didn't matter. None of them remember that today. And sometimes we, within something that happens at work or something that happens in our professional life, we let it bring us down. And you just got to let go because there's always a tomorrow. Yeah, man, so much wisdom encapsulated in all of those comments. And honestly, this would be the best place to kind of end the podcast. But I do have one more question because you've alluded to a handful of different items. And I rarely meet people that have attained your level of success and your kind of stature and and journey, et cetera, without making kind of their network and their the people that they surround themselves and their mentors kind of a priority. And you alluded to this early, even on like, I reached out to my last company to do a product innovation roadmap together. And even earlier in the conversations, you know, it's like, when you hear about something, your immediate reaction is I'm going to reach out to this person or this former employee or whatever. And, and you kind of build this network around you of trusted advisors and people that you lean on, et cetera. Again, back to the advice kind of piece, who do you lean on? Who do you rely on to get what you need done? And how does that factor into, again, that maybe desire of early people in their career to jump to the front of the line or or to climb the ladder as quickly as possible? That truly is kind of like a team sport, right? Succeeding in life and in a professional sense comes down to the relationships that you foster and the people you surround yourself with. Any other final guest commentary on that front? 
Yeah, maybe a couple. I always tell my kids, be good and nice to everyone because you never know when it can circle back around. And I have to tell you, people that I met years ago, I run into today and you establish a reputation for yourself and you want that reputation to be good and nice. But then the other thing I would say is there are people around you who are inherently smart in one area, inherently competent in another area, and they are going to be resources for you throughout your life. And you'll never know when you need them. So the combination of being a good boss in the past and knowing people with great competencies and experiences has caused now I think I'm up to eight people from two of my last companies working for me. And I've had other people that have come along with me and I've been pulled along by people to the next companies. And that's why building relationships, understanding people's competencies is really important. I love it. Well, and it's wild. It's wild when it comes around to your point, you never expect it. You never know. And people come in and out of your life in ways that you didn't ever imagine. You see them again. So I echo everything you just said. Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure. And I knew it would be. I've been looking forward to this interview for a really long time. And you did not let me down. So the success streak continues. But thank you so much for making time. I know you're incredibly busy. I know it's a busy time of year. But I really think our listeners will appreciate hearing from you and all of your success. And I wish you the very best heading into the end of the year. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. And I know this will be surfaced and and presented when we're right in the thick of 2022. But again, really appreciate your time and hope to see you again in the future. Thanks, John. I've really enjoyed it too. Have a great rest of the week. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. 